Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. All right, welcome to Masterclass. Thank you for being here. Those of you who are here in person and so coming in, and everybody who's watching online, thanks for being here. This is week, is this week three? three? Week three of Masterclass. And um, what's been your favorite week so far? What's your favorite topic where you got to talk about um, the spirit Yeah, of... yeah, yeah. Demon possession, not my favorite topic. Okay. Um, right. Although interesting, interesting. Probably yeah. this week so far. This week is yeah. going to be your favorite. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Way to be optimistic. Yeah. All right. Doyle, how about you, man? How we, we missed you last week, buddy. We did. That was my favorite week. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That was a lot of people's favorite week. Yeah. So anyway, um, Autumn, did you have a favorite week so far? Is this week going to be your no, favorite week? No, it is not this week. Not I this really, week. I, this was a challenge. It was a, it was a tough one. Well, that would be good. Then. We're excited to hear what, what you have to say. What about you? What's your favorite week? Um, oof, I think, let's see, last week was my probably my favorite week, but when she did her part. So. Mm. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> I appreciate that. Sorry. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway, uh, so if you have any questions, um, Please feel free, they're here in the room, you guys can raise your hand, but everybody online, text in your questions or comment on any of the different platforms that this is playing on, and we will be monitoring those and going through your questions. We've had a lot of great questions the last few weeks, and um, that's actually become, that's actually my favorite part about questions. the thing. Yeah. Is, is they also can text in, right? Questions. Did you say yeah, that? So the they text, right back there? text in, or they can put them on the, um, any of the platforms, just comment, and we will get those. All right, so who's up? Autumn, are you up first? Me. All right. All right, so like I said, this week is a bit of a challenging week. So you should, if you picked up your notes on the way in, uh, they're really complicated. They look really complicated, but there actually is a really simple theme that kind of runs through this week. Uh Uh-oh, I see people laughing as their problem. Stop laughing at me, people. Um, So there's actually a really simple theme that runs through this week. It's just there's like comments and asides that maybe distract you from it a little bit. So I'm going to try to make that theme really clear to us so that we can keep it in our head and it makes everything tie together really nicely if you can keep the theme really clear in your head. And so the theme of this week is, um, we, had ca- we, we called it out at the beginning, that this is the, the third narrative slash discourse pair, and they are all centered around kind of the king, kingdom conflict. So it's either how people are conflicting with the kingdom or how people are conflicted by the kingdom. And, and what the central theme that, that is happening in this is all of these people that we're going to see, all of the parables, everything, is all revolving around the idea of the way that people are responding to the kingdom message, okay? So all of the parables, all of this, the narrative section, it's all about how people are responding to the kingdom message. So in the narrative, we see uh, one, two, three, four different groups of people and how they are responding to the kingdom message. So the very first person that we see responding to the kingdom message is one that had been introduced earlier in Matthew, and it is John the Baptist. So this is a relative of Jesus's, um, and he was the prophet who had announced Jesus's coming. He was preparing the way for Jesus, and he is currently in prison. And his response to Jesus, we're gonna, in, for 
all of these people, we're going to see their response and then how Jesus replies to them. So John's response in the, in the beginning of chapter 11 is he's really confused because Jesus has come and he's not doing what Jesus had expected him to do. A lot of us feel that way about Jesus sometimes too. He comes into our life and he doesn't behave the way that we want him to. And so his response is that he's confused and questioning. And Jesus' reaction to him is that he gives him evidence of who he is. He reminds him of, the, of all of the evidence of what he's been doing. And then he responds with empathy. He, he, you know, when he says, um, blessed are those who don't fall away on account of me, he says that right in the beginning, beginning of 11, is, is I, I feel like that's his empathetic response. Like, hey, I know this is tough, um, but, but stick with it, buddy, because there's good stuff coming. Uh, he, there's a side note in here, and it's a long side note, and this is where stuff kind of can get distracting, and it's, um, it's in the section, uh, chapter seven, or it's, uh, verse seven, all the way down to 15 is kind of a side note, and basically what it is is Jesus is kind of explaining who John is. It's a side note, and he says that John is the last Old Testament prophet, and what that means is he's kind of, a, he's a pre-runner pre of the kingdom. And so he's not actually going to be a recipient, an heir of all of the kingdom promises because he's going to die in like two chapters. So he's going to actually not see the kingdom come to its fulfillment. And so that's what that little section is about. Then we go on and we see uh, people responding to Jesus. There are three responses. The first response, and these are like really kind of like, big summaries of these sections, um, but this is all in chapter 11, 16 through 30. The first response is people say, no way, I'm rejecting Jesus, you are not who I thought you were, you're not doing what I want you to do, I don't, I, I'm rejecting you. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you're childish and you're foolish. The second group of people that respond to Jesus are just duds. So if you think of what a dud is, it's a firework that you like light the fuse, you're super excited, you, and you run away from it like, oh, it's going to explode, and then it just doesn't go off. Like it, it has all the potential, but it just doesn't take off. And that is what Jesus calls this generation. There's all of these people, and they have all this potential, and we've given them everything that they need to enter into the kingdom, and they just don't do it. And he says, judgment is in store for those guys. They better watch out. And then the third group of people are the people who have had the kingdom revealed to them. And they, their response to the kingdom is, aha, I get it, I finally see it. And, and Jesus' uh, response to them is, I have rest for you. I, I have peace and I have rest for you. So that's how the people are responding to Jesus. And in here, there's another little section um, where Jesus is, has actually a prayer uh, that he's talking to God. And in it, I just want to point out, he calls Jesus, fa Jesus calls God Father for the first time in this gospel, um, a personal term of endearment. Um, and, and he says that he knows God. He knows God intimately and that nobody knows God the way that he does. And so this is all just a little side note there. Now we move back on and we see another group of people who are responding to Jesus. And this group of people is the, the religious leaders. And they issue three charges against Jesus. Um, so this is all in, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 45. 
And the, basically the three points of contention that they have with Jesus, and these are all, um, they all actually happen pretty chronologically in the reading as you look at it. The first uh, charge that they level at him is that he's a lawbreaker. And I summarize his response to that charge that he's a lawbreaker is, I make the rules. I am able to interpret these rules the way that I want to. And the second thing is, is that he is able to define what God's will actually is. So that's his response to the charge of being a lawbreaker. And you'll see I have a little note down here that's a number one. There's a note that happens right after that section about all his, the Sabbath controversies. Um, this really, really ticks the Pharisees off. And it's at this point that we first see they want to kill him. They want to kill him this early in the gospel, but we know he's not going to die till the end. It's too early, so he actually backs off. He, he goes out from whatever city he's in. I think he's in Capernaum. He backs off. The second charge that they level at him is that um, I was thinking like, you know, like we have like clean sourced or locally sourced produce. They say that his miracles are hell sourced. That's where he's getting the source of all of his miracles and all of his powers. Namely, uh, demon, he's exercising demons. And so he's using hell power to do that. And his response to this is one of his strongest responses that we'll see in Matthew. One is uh, he says, you're really, really wrong. Um, you're, you're very wrong. And that's, a, a, again, a gross understatement of what he's saying. Um, and Matt's going to get more into that. But he says that my miracles are actually Holy Spirit sourced, that my power comes from the Holy Spirit. And, and what he get, when he says he's really, what he's saying when he's saying you're really wrong is you are trying to call evil good and good evil. Um, and that is a really bad thing. The third charge that they level at him is that he is not qualified. When they're asking for a sign, they ask him for a sign. Um, a lot of the commentaries that I read that basically they're trying to say, it's like, you know, when you go to get a diploma or, you know, somebody goes to get a master's degree, they have to uh, stand a test in front of like a panel of judges. And it's almost like, you haven't done that. We're the Pharisees. We're the religious leaders. You should have come to us and submitted yourself to us. And then we could certify you as like a good teacher. And you haven't done that. You're not qualified. And um, Jesus's response to that is basically, Look at all of those heathens in the Old Testament, the people of Nineveh and you know, the, even the queen of the south who came to see Solomon. They are going to stand up and look at you at the day of judgment and they are going to judge you because they actually grasped onto God's truth quicker than you did because he said, I gave you all the signs you needed. Um, there were a couple notes in here. Jesus says uh, after the, the hell source thing is that you've got to pick a side um, and that your words, the way that you're talking about me and the Holy Spirit, reveal whose side you're actually on. And then the, the third one kind of refers back a little bit to these dud people, these people who are unrepentant and miss Jesus' message, um, that they're in for a, a real hard time that's coming up. It's, it's kind of a weird story in there, but, but that's basically it. They're, they're, they're in for worse trouble than if they almost had never heard anything. <clears throat> and then the last group of people that respond to Jesus are his family. So his mother and his brothers come to visit him. And he uses their visit as an example of two different kinds of people. So the first one, Matt, you're going to talk a little bit about Jesus' family, right? I'm not today, no. Oh, you're not. Okay. 
there's two different kinds of family. So this is the family of the flesh and the family of uh, the, the true family. And so he basically uses this, this little interaction to say um, the real family are our true family if and only if they do God's will. If they're a group of people that does God's will, they are my true family. And if, you're, if you get confused about that little passage, I just want to say, I think um, what you can look at is to where everyone is standing. Jesus is teaching on the inside of a room, and Jesus' family purposely stays on the outside. And they won't come into Jesus' teach- teaching. They want him to come out to them. And I think it's kind of an indicator of where their heart actually is, that they are not in it to learn from Jesus, they think that they have something to teach him. So that's just my, my, my two cents. Okay, this last section is honestly much more straightforward to me. Um, so basically, I, I kind of looked at it as like a five-paragraph essay. If any of you guys have ever like outlined, I was an English major, so this is how I would outline like every essay that I ever wrote from ninth grade till June. But um, so basically, you have an intro and a conclusion, and then you have three supporting paragraphs. So in this, we have the three, the, the, so the intro is basically Jesus is going to be teaching by the lake, and the conclusion is his challenge to uh, look at these kingdom pro- promises and the biblical promises with new eyes. And then he has three sets of parables. So the first one is the parable of the soil. So you have the parable, you know, the soil that was, or the seed that was thrown on the path, on the rocks, on the weeds, uh, and then the, the seed that was in the good soil that produced a, a harvest. And Jesus interprets the parables, and then he makes a comment. And so his comment is, for this first one, is blessed are those who truly see, and blessed are those who hear and actually hear, you know, actually understand what they're saying. So that's the foundation, and again, you can see that this goes all the way back to this is the way people are responding to the the news of the kingdom. Then we have two more sets of three parables. So we have the parables of the weeds, the mustard seed, and the yeast are grouped together. And then we have three parables, the, the parables of the treasure, the pearl, and then the fish in the net that are grouped together. And then there's some comments that are interspersed in there. So they're basically checking for understanding um, and about the nature of parables. And then, yeah, gosh, I have a lot. I'm telling you guys, this was a complicated week. So Jesus interprets the parables. So you'll have the parables and then you'll have an interpretation. And then both of these sets of parables kind of have the same conclusion. And the conclusion is all of these parables are about... Um, separating kingdom people from non-kingdom people. And that in this world, they will be mixed together. Kingdom people, the righteous and the unrighteous, will be mixed together. But there will come a day at the end that God is going to separate those two people. And he says some really harsh things here um, in in this, this passage. But basically he says at the end that the righteous are going to shine that God is going to hold them up, and at the end, they are going to shine. And at the, um, the end, the wicked are actually going to b- burn. They're going to be thrown into a furnace. So, yeah, fish get thrown in the furnace, and the weeds get thrown into the furnace. So, yeah, that's it. He challenges them to look at um, 
God's law with new eyes um, to look at these principles that he's laying out as, as a new treasure that he has delivered to them. So I think that's it. Complicated. Cool. Thank you. Wow. That's I'm tired. Yeah, yeah that's a lot. Easy passage. That was amazing. <laughs> that was great. Can you imagine if you tried to do a sermon on all of that? Because I think you did 35 minutes this last weekend on... One sentence. One sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift. It really is. So, okay. Um, let's, uh, let's throw that to you guys for any, uh, any questions that we have here. Um, any of you guys have any questions? And then if not, you... Oh, your kids are here, and they're giving well, you the thumbs it. up, which means we're not embarrassed of you, Mom. Way to go, <laughs> which is a win. Okay, uh, anybody else have any questions? Uh, yep, back there. Okay, can you repeat the question? Let's see, and let's make sure we understand the question. So I think it's that if, so the question is that if Jesus was part of the Trinity from the beginning of time, why does Jesus need to introduce the Father, or why does Jesus need to introduce the kingdom? Or intercede with the Father. So I, I think, um, I, I'm, so the question is, if I hear you correctly, is why does Matthew introduce the kingdom of God um, if the kingdom already existed prior to Jesus? Is that roughly what you're kind of asking? Okay, good. good. Do you want, anybody want to take that? Okay, it looks like I will. Okay, um, so the, the kingdom of God is not being introduced, uh, is, so it, how do I explain this? Um, the kingdom of God is something that has existed for eternity past because the kingdom of God is where God's will is done um, is in its simplest form. Now, um, so whenever God's will is being done, that's the kingdom of God. And so before, before creation, I guess you could say, I never thought of it in these terms, but um, the kingdom existed because God's will was being done. In the garden, the kingdom existed because God's will was being done there before the fall. When the fall happened, that's when the kingdom split. Um, and so the kingdom has always been, been, um, been a part of the creation, but this is the kingdom coming back to, um, uh, under his rule, under uh, God's rule. And so um, Matthew is introducing us to the idea of the kingdom, or I guess the inauguration of the kingdom, not because God didn't know about it, and not because Jesus wasn't already in control, but because we needed to know about it. And so the, the introduction of the kingdom by Matthew, um, well, by Jesus through Matthew, is because it's for us to hear the news. It's not for him to be made aware. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but we can, we can chat a little bit later on. Um, yes, question right here.
Okay, so the question is about Matthew 12, uh, verse 7 and 8. And um, does anybody want to take that? I'm actually going to talk on that in a second. Oh, okay, good. Well, then there you go. He's going to tackle that in a second. Great. Um, I have gotten a lot of questions about where the notes are. If you go onto any of our platforms, you will see that we have posted the notes in the link in the comment section right there. So you can uh, jump in there. Okay, um, any other questions here in the live? No? Okay, I think we've got a couple more. Um, Why is Jesus referred to as the Son of Man as opposed to the Son of God? There's a duality in both of those. Uh, they're both messianic titles that come from the Old Testament. The Son of Man uh, is often talks about in the book of Matthew. Um, there's different focuses in different Gospels. John is very clear. He wants us to under, understand the divinity. Matthew opens up in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, all the, basically the entire chapter, um, with, a, like with a genealogy, a lineage. He wants us to understand something called the hypostatic union. It's ah, the, come on. What? <laughs> Come on. All right, Bible. I had, I had one of those on my lawnmower. <laughs> Hypostatic transmission. That's, Ooh, that's good. good. I think that's it's good. the same thing. Um, it's the idea that God is, or that Jesus is 100% man, 100% uh, God. Um, and so uh, the son of man title is that he, he, in the essence, is incarnate, carne, meat, incarnate. God is in flesh, in human body. So that's what that son of man means. It means, yes, he is God, but in human flesh. Good job. Hypostatic union. Hypostatic? Hypostatic union. Okay. Yeah. What about just a regular static? No, no, no. It has to be It's got to be hypo? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anybody else? Uh, any other questions here before Matt continues on? All right. Um, I think there's people that are asking more about the notes. We'll see if we can figure it out. They said maybe they're not opening, but we'll figure that out. All right. You're up. Here we go. Hypostatic union. Whoa. Whoa. It made Whoa. me angry. What about? What's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're the hyperstatic union. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, all right. So my job, uh, just like last week, is to kind of take some challenging uh, questions and some text uh, and provide you guys some, some hopefully, some answers. Um, and so if you were like me, you were, you were journeying through uh, these chapters this last week and you had some questions. And so just like I did last week, I'm going to try to take some, uh, uh, some text that I was like, what on earth do these mean? And provide some context and clarity. And so what I'm not going to do is do Matthew 11 today, because Doyle spent most of his sermon this last week in Matthew chapter 11. So today we're going to focus our energies on chapter 12 and uh, chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter uh, 12. I'm in the ESV, just so you guys know. We're going to be starting in verse 1. The very first question we're going to be journeying through today is this question right here. Did Jesus break the Sabbath? And if he did break the Sabbath, would that mean he was sinning? I want you to follow with me. Verse 1 says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So imagine they're walking through. It's on the Sabbath, and uh, that's a day, by the way, we're going to talk about in a second. We're not supposed to be working, um, and we'll put working in quotation marks because we're going to... The way the Pharisees define it is a little bit differently than the way Jesus wants them to. And so they're hungry. And so they, they see there's some apple trees and other things. And so they grab some food and they start to eat. It continues in verse 2. It says, But the Pharisees saw it and said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to him, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Verse 5 says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's hugely important. This is where Jesus is, is, is bringing us to his divinity. The temple, is uh, uh, the tabernacle specifically, and the Ark of the Covenant was a place where God physically dwelt. He's saying that something greater than the temple is here. That's huge. It's speaking to his divinity. 
Verse 7, if you have known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is talking about, like, that, that he wants us to understand that God is like a good father, right? There's a, he's going to continue to talk about relational type of language. It's not this huge Simon says where God is kind of like a, a kid with a magnifying glass trying to angle the, the sun's rays to scorch people who mess up or a cosmic police officer. It's not any of that. It's a relational, God's relational. We'll talk about more of that in a second. He continues and says, And if you've known what this means, that is our mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Eight, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So I'll give it to you at first glance, right? It does kind of look like, like he's kind of violating the Sabbath. He's kind of allowing his disciples to work, in quotation marks, um, by, violating, by violating the Sabbath law. It comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, uh, verse 11. It says this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let me give you some context just quickly. If you, didn't, if you, didn't, if you don't really know your Bible that well, I'm pumped you're here. But uh, maybe you have no idea what this idea of the Sabbath really is. Let me give you some context here. Um, the Sabbath is just simply a day of rest. Uh, and, and we have to understand that, that God created the Sabbath not for himself. God is, is, is a, a, a being that does not get, uh, he's infinite, right? He does not get tired. And so we have to understand that he didn't rest because he was tired. He's trying to illustrate and show something about his creation, about you and about me, that woven into the fabric of the world and the imprint of the human soul is this desire, is this need to click pause and, and, and to rest. Now, that was the purpose of the Sabbath, right? Was to uh, yeah, click pause and to, to replenish yourself physically and spiritually. It was to cease from work or any type of activity that you would see as, as, as emotionally, relationally, spiritually, whatever, draining and to click pause to replenish yourself, right, to refuel. Now, in the creation narrative we find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is where we originally get this idea of God resting. We don't get the term Sabbath, but we get the idea that God is resting. Now, in the creation narrative, we see both a pattern and a definition. The pattern is obvious. What is it? Well, it says um, that there's six days, yeah, six days of work. So you're grinding for six days, one day of rest, one day of relaxation, one day of refueling. But the definition actually has two parts. Obviously, right, because the, the adequate understanding of a human would be an embodied soul. So there's two, there's two focus to rest here. The first would be physical rest. It's about, like I said, clicking pause and doing everything uh, you need to give your, uh, your body to rest. And when you think about it, right, only when you actually do rest, you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. If you work seven days a week, well, you have, you have no time to actually enjoy what all of your hard work has allowed you to, to rest in, right? The second part of this, though, is a soul rest. And if I wish I could talk a little bit more about this, but it's where God accomplished really what he set out to do and was pleased with the results. It's where he said it, it, it was good. And so part of the Sabbath, the day that you and I are commanded to take off, is where we're supposed to pause from our physical activity, like work, and then to actually lean upon the source of that which replenishes our soul, God's word and, and our relationship with him. And so anyways, that's some context for the Sabbath for those of you guys that don't really know. Now, in our, our passage for today, we find the Pharisees critiquing Jesus and his disciples for working on the Sabbath. Now, what were they doing? That's the question we need to ask. Well, they were picking fruit because they were hungry. And so uh, this obviously uh, made the Pharisees super, super angry that they would do something like this. And so that's kind of the dialogue that, that's happening here. Now, what's interesting is in the ancient world, many Jewish rabbis filled Judaism with elaborate rituals and um, things related to Sabbath and other kind of other laws. This was an oral tradition that was called the Mishnah. And uh, it wasn't founded in scripture. And during the time of Jesus' life, it was never written down. But what this was like was basically um, famous and ancient rabbis and basically their sermons. 
and it was an oral tradition. This is what this verse means. Uh, this is how you apply it. And what they actually did is because they were pharisaical, meaning very legalistic, is they continued to add rules and regulations and laws that were not founded and were not grounded in God's word. And so that's what's actually kind of happening here. Nowhere does it say you're not allowed to eat, you're not allowed to pick food, and, but, but centuries beforehand, there was a rabbi who said something like that. And so they're elevating the word of man up to the word of God, therefore causing conflict between God incarnate and man, the most pharisaical, legalistic type of men that there were. In fact, ancient rabbis taught on the Sabbath a man could not carry something in his right or his left hand, he could not carry something on his shoulders. In fact, um, he could carry something and only something with the back of his hand, which I don't know how you do, with his foot, elbow, in his ear, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that you're not to make fires on the Sabbath. And so in modern-day Israel, um, they're so legalistic that they have literally created elevators that stop on the day of the Sabbath at every single floor because they believe that if you push the elevator button that creates a fire, an electronic spark, that will actually get to to stop, and therefore you are working. They've obviously completely missed the point here, right? God is not, he's not a helicopter parent. That's not not what's happening there, right? And so Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath by doing this. By the way, even if he was breaking the Sabbath, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He was, in the book of John chapter one, we learned that he was the one that created everything, right? So if he, it's, the Sabbath is not a rule that restricts God. It's a rule that's for our benefit, right? It's, 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 to limit us from, exo- from just being exhausted, right? And the second part, he wasn't breaking uh, the Sabbath. He was breaking man's legalistic additions to the law. Next question we're going to journey through today. Matthew chapter 12 says, blaspheming the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Why is that? Uh, why can't it be forgiven? You have your Bibles. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 31. But as you turn there, let me give you some context of kind of the surrounding passages and what's really going on there. Jesus had just performed a miracle. He's casted out a demon of a man, and, and he's speaking with authority, and he's, he's, he's giving insights that, that these Jewish people have never heard before. And so as he's up there performing this miraculous miracle of casting this demon out of this man, there's a group of people that begin to surround Jesus, and they say, who could this man be? Could this be the, the son of God, the son of man? Could this be the promised Messiah that for centuries we have been looking forward to, we have been, uh, it's been prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, and all throughout the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, it's been focusing human history towards this climactic moment with this person. Could this be him? And so the Pharisees, they start to overhear what these people are saying, that this is the Messiah, this is the Lord, this is the promised one. And so they run over there and they basically say, no, 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 he's not the Messiah. He's not the promised one, the deliverer. He's none of those things. He's not the Prince of Peace, the everlasting father, the wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's none of those things. Rather, he's actually Satan himself. He's actually not God incarnate. He's Satan incarnate. And so Jesus then breaks into a logical argument of why he's not Satan and then kind of also talks about this idea of uh, blaspheming. I want you to follow with me in verse 31. It says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So you're smart people. Two questions that you probably think about is, number one, what is blasphemy? And the second question it sounds like maybe blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a little bit different. So what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Let's jump into the first question, what is blasphemy? The term can actually mean a rebellious irreverence. See, blasphemy is when the Holy Spirit convicts those that are unsaved. This is important, that they are unsaved of their sin and that they are still operating under judgment. They are not righteous. They have not been purchased by the blood of Christ, right? They are still, they stand condemned before a holy and perfect God. And so 
the Holy Spirit is actively working in this person's life, right, to convict them of their sin and their standing before God and to, to repent and to change and to turn towards a good God, and they remain defiant, have no desire to repent. That is what it means to blaspheme. So it's obvious for this individual that they don't have any type of salvation because they're rejecting the Spirit's promptings to believe in Jesus, and so they die in their unbelief. Let me make it simple for you, though. Blaspheming is unpartable in Scripture because it is the state of continued unbelief. The state of continued unbelief. How do we know this? Well, in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 36, says this. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why? Well, because they haven't allowed Jesus to pay their debt. They haven't allowed Jesus to pay their bill. They're still, they're still oh, an infinite offense against an infinite God. And so the next question we need to ask is, okay, what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, I think the best way to answer this is to kind of look at the, the, the text that's in question, right? Follow with me about 10 or so verses behind in uh, verse 23, chapter 12. This is all the people were amazed and said, could this be the son of David, right? Could this be who, 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 who we've thought it could be? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only Bezabal, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. You know, this is, the, the, historically speaking, he was related to Baal in the Old Testament, but most famously, he was the Philistine god um, Ekron, uh, and his most famous title was the Lord of the Flies. Now, this is another name for Satan, simply like Lucifer and a handful of other ones in, in, in Scripture. And this, what they're literally saying here is they're smearing Jesus by saying, no, he's not the Messiah, he's not God. Rather, he's the opposite of that. He is literally Satan who has come to deceive you guys. And so then he breaks up into this, this idea of this warning of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll be honest with you, uh, I read five or six different uh, commentaries on this, and it seems there's two lanes of thought about this. And so let me kind of present both of them to you. The first is, uh, has to do with blasphemy in general. There's a guy named D.A. Carson. He's a scholar, theologian. Um, he says this, Such people are thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Their blasphemy is to deny the Spirit's testimony about Jesus, knowingly ascribe it to some other, usually evil, source. So let me give you some good news really quick, because that sounds like bad news. Uh, is this isn't something that believers can do. Why? Well, people who commit this sin don't care about their eternal state, don't care about their standing before God. As a believer, what do we care about? We care about eternal state. We care about our relationship with God, and we're trying to invest in that relationship with God. Let me give you the second interpretation of this. The second interpretation has to do with this very specific moment in time and in human history. Let me give you maybe uh, uh, a few examples here. One argument is that this cannot be reproduced and this cannot be duplicated in, modern, in, in the modern world, in the modern era, because the argument is the Pharisees were the masters of the Torah. They were the masters of the Old Testament. So if there was anyone, if there was anyone, when God shows up and knocks on your door, who's supposed to welcome them with open arms and hug them, it's supposed to be the guys who say we're in his family. It's supposed to be the guy teaching his word. And they missed it, right? These are the people who are supposed to welcome God. They also had the, the spirit inside, tempt, or, uh, stirring in their hearts. And most importantly, they had God incarnate right in front of them, doing some miraculous things, teaching, unlocking things the Old Testament that they had not known, teaching with wisdom and authority, and performing miracles right in front of their eyes. Now, you've got to understand, this positioned them uniquely um, because never, never in human history had such knowledge and opportunity had been revealed to the world and specifically to mankind. And so this interpretation says that because these men were leaders in God's family, Right? Leaders in God's family, yet when God in human flesh only showed up and knocked on their door, they rejected him. And then they called him Satan. Which could be like, the, like I can't imagine if I went home and I, and I opened my front door and my wife didn't recognize me. Like, she's like terrified. She's running away from me. Right? I, I would be like, do you not know who I am? 
That's what Jesus did when he walked into the temple, when he walked home to his people, the Jewish people, and they didn't recognize him. I can imagine how painful that would be. And rather, they don't, they don't call him Father. They don't call him Lord. They call him Satan. So this sin is unforgivable because they have rejected the strongest of testimonies. Literally, God in flesh with the law and the prophets and the Torah and their interpretation of it and their understanding of it and their following of it. And, and Jesus performing miracles, speaking with authority, giving wisdom, all of these different types of things, they have the strongest of testimonies. And instead of repenting and acknowledging that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is God, that he is the promised Messiah, the deliverer, all of the things of the Old, uh, Old Testament, instead of attributing all that to him, they rather, they call him Satan. They attribute his character and his nature to that of the devil. And that's the reason it's unforgivable. Question number three, our last one's in the book of Matthew chapter 13. You guys can take your Bibles and go with me there. Question is, why did Jesus, I get this one in youth all the time, speak in such confusing parables? And I go, amen. Um, yeah, like, was he intentionally trying to, like, 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 get us not to, was he intentionally trying to make us feel stupid? Because if he did, man, he's doing a phenomenal job, right? Or <laughs> is he intentionally uh, trying to obscure his teaching, right, with some cloudy thoughts and some things that don't make sense 2,000 years later? And that's a great question. Two questions we need to think through first. Number one would be, what is a parable? That's a great question. Uh, and again, I get these ones in youth all the time. A parable, simple. It's a fictitious story that Jesus told to illustrate a truth, to teach us something about the kingdom of God, about the way he sees things, about the truth of the human condition, things about heaven, hell, eschatology, end times, things like that. That's what parables were designed to do. Now, honestly, I kind of laugh when, in Scripture when Jesus would give a parable and his disciples um, would say something like they do in the book of Matthew chapter uh, 13, 51. Jesus gives this parable, and they say, have you understood all these things? But Jesus says, have you understood all these things, all the, the parables that said, all the, the, the prophecy and the wisdom and the direction? Do you understand it all? And they respond, yes. <laughs> now, either I'm an idiot, which is highly probable, and these are the most genius men in human history, which is, again, probable, and 90% of the things that Jesus said go right over my head, and it doesn't go over their head because they are all Einsteins, or... Or they're like kids, you know, in a classroom and the teacher has just taught like algebra or something like that. And the teacher goes, all right, kids, you have any questions? And, uh, and no one raises their hand, right? And it's not because they, they have an exhaustive understanding of all that the teacher taught. It's because they're lazy and they're bored and they want the subject to change. And so I think the, 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 the uh, disciples are kind of probably more like me, right? And so they probably didn't understand 90% of what Jesus was saying, which makes me feel pretty good because they were changed the world with the 10% that they understood, right? And they also walked with Jesus for three years, right? And so that gives me a little bit of hope. But anyways, I want you to follow with me. And here's why I know they didn't understand. Verse 13, or so chapter 13, verse 10, that's the one up there, it says this. Uh, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Like, all right, look, Jesus, I'm a smart dude. I get what you're saying. But like, you know, I got a buddy. And like, he didn't understand what you're saying. And so like, could you tell him maybe, or maybe give me the answer of why you kind of give these confusing parables, you know? Because I'm smart, but he's not. And so, you know, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, let me provide you with a weird thought. And uh, I wasn't going to answer it this way, um, but... I think it's a unique answer. Um, it doesn't originate with me, by the way. Anything smart I ever say, by the way, doesn't originate with me. It probably originates from Cody or Doyle. Uh, just Doyle, actually. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me provide you with a question. Could confusion possibly be one of the purposes of parables? Could confusion in itself possibly be one of the purposes of the parables? I want you to follow with me in verse 13, chapter 13. It says this, this is why Jesus answers, I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive. Verse 15, 
For, this pe- for these people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And I want you to see this next part. Highlight it if you have your Bibles with you. Understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I want to point out the relational phrase, understand with their heart, and it says, I, God's I, would heal them. It's relational. You know, love and desire, those both originate in your heart, right? And that is what most primarily God is first and foremost after. He's not necessarily just after your mind. Most primarily, he's after your volition, your love, your desires, because those are the orientations that really steer our lives. It's not necessarily what do we just think. To be a human being is more than being a thinking thing. All throughout Scripture, what it means to be a human being is to be a lover. Think about the people that most people don't follow their wisdom. They follow their loves, their interests. They follow, they, follow their, they follow their loves. Think about all the people who are willing to do some pretty dumb things for the things in which they love. Right? Things that mathematically, uh, for the lens of discernment or wisdom, they just don't add up. They don't make sense. So love and desire originate in the heart, and that's what God is primarily after. See, Christianity is no more about the acquisition of knowledge than a strong marriage is about the acquisition of knowledge of your spouse. See, Christianity is is about a relational God who's made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be in relationship with him forever and ever. And so one of the reasons that parables could be confusing at first, I want you to hear this and track with me, is because God doesn't want us to fall into the same trap the Pharisees fell into, having no relationship with the author of the book and then only going to the book for the source of life. Now, don't hear me saying that not studying your Bible, like, is, is, like don't not study your Bible. That's not what I'm saying here. Second uh, Timothy uh, 3.16 talks about the purposes of Scripture, Hebrews 4.12. I mean, these are verses that talk about the Bible is of infinite importance because it's God-breathed. It's, it's God's word for us, right? But God did not inspire the Bible to be written just so we have a book about God. God inspired it so it would draw us closer to himself and so that we could look to him as the source of life. And then an explanation of his word through his spirit. I want you to track with me on this. See, the Pharisees, they were just people of the book. We're people of the book too. But they were just people of the book, not people in his family. And there's a huge difference there. And so, before I hand it back over to Cody, parables can possibly be confusing for a purpose. That is to draw us, in, draw us to him for an explanation where he leads us into living and loving like he lived and like he loved, which ironically turns out to be the meaning of most of Jesus' parables actually all along. That's all I got. Cool. Thank you, Matt. Good job, man. All right. Got any questions? Yeah, I got lots of questions. Let's start here first, and then oh, we'll, no. see, uh, we'll see. We'll go to the people online and texting them. And so anybody in the room have a question? I go to you guys first. Because you guys showed up to be here live and in person while everybody else is sitting at home. All right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, so the question is, when we're talking about hell, um, 
you know, there's the idea that it's an eternal separation from God, um, and um, I think we've talked about this before. Great book, not for theology, but for more your imagination, is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. I've recommended that many times. Very interesting take on heaven and hell and people's attitudes towards heaven and hell. Um, and it's, it's very interesting, so check that out. But um, the question is, you know, a lot of the illustrations have to do with fire. Is it a place of fire? Is that supposed to be literal? Is that supposed to be figurative? How do we make sense of that? And I think you guys were talking a little bit about that so earlier. So in, in the fifth week, um, uh, if they let me, I'll, I'll spend a portion of, of my time actually really diving into hell. Uh, I think Matthew chapter, super fun. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to dive into hell. Why don't you just talk about it? More so like give you a picture of it and be like, this is what you do not to go there. Uh, Dante's Inferno. Yeah, um, I'm going to spend a, a good portion of, of kind of my talk kind of talking about this idea of what a literal hell is um, and the imagery in Scripture. Uh, you use the word separation, which I would agree with. Uh, if God is the source of all that is good, life, peace, mercy, forgiveness, uh, think of anything that's joy, uh, happiness, laughter, all of these things. Well, hell is a place where that is void where God has eternally separated himself from this place. So if people say, well, I don't want God here, and he's the author of all those things, well, hell is just an extension of that decision, an eternal separation. Um, the Bible has some really terrible things to talk about when it, when it talks about the reality and the depravity of hell. We have something called, uh, uh, I'll answer it in, in, more in complex in a few weeks. I don't want to take 10 minutes to answer this question. Um, so this idea of fire it permeates throughout Scripture, eternal lake of fire, and things along those lines. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's, an, if there's actual, like, fire. It talks about smelling sulfur, using strong language like that. Um, so I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? Do you think there's a literal fire where it's like, like you know, like he's with a pitchfork and you know, there's actual literal fire and people are burning? When the Bible uses the term uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, that's a pretty powerful image, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, from what I can gather. I think that there, uh, there is a lot of uh, imagery that is being used to describe hell in, in all of the ways that it's described throughout the Bible. Um, and I think what is happening is they're trying to use words to describe something that's indescribable. You know, something that we, it's like trying to tell a fish how to walk. Like, it's just not something that our minds can probably wrap, we can't wrap our heads around it. And so, but but I do think that it, it seems pretty clear, like however metaphorical it is being talked about, it's a real place, um, that, it, that there's actually a physical place uh, and that uh, you don't want to be there. <laughs> it's going to really not be a pleasant place to be, like the weeping and gnashing of teeth and fire and darkness that are used to describe it. They're all bad things. They're things that you're afraid of um, when you're a kid. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I did get a comment here. Is, uh, it says, is the lighting different this week? Autumn always looks good, but this is the first week for Matt. Sick. <laughs> I didn't make that up. <laughs> Thank you very much. My goodness. Anyway, okay. Uh, any other questions in the room before I go to all the questions that are online? I want to give you guys first go, okay? I have a question. Who wrote that? Uh, <laughs> right, for real. Okay. Um, oh, man, we got lots of questions. Okay. Um, one of the questions is, this is, I'm going to give this one to you because you talked about it. Okay. It says, uh, John recognizes who Jesus is and proclaims it. Then in 11, 2, 3, 
he is questioning if Jesus is the one. What happened that caused him to doubt? Was it because he was imprisoned and this trial caused him to doubt, or is there more to yes. it? Uh, yeah, so I think it's what they said. So John, if you think, if you read back to what John was proclaiming, John was it had come out in the form of an Old Testament pro- prophet, which was basically repent, God's judgment is coming, you guys are all in trouble. Like, and and in some ways, I almost think John, when he saw Jesus came, it was like you have you ever heard the story of Jonah, where he like goes up on the hill and is like, all right, I'm waiting for God's fire to rain down. Um, and to see what happens. And, you know, he thought God was going to bring the kingdom in in this really powerful and maybe the judgment side of things. And then when Jesus came, he, like, walked around, and what did he do? Like, he taught, and he preached, and he healed people. Like, he, these, this was not fire and judgment Jesus that, that John was expecting. I mean, John was fasting and praying crazy man in the desert and then jesus came and was eating and drinking and partying and not partying in a bad way he's having a good time anyway so he just was so completely outside of john's realm of possibility that john then and and john gets put in prison for proclaiming uh the truth and he's in prison, and he, he's going to die there. I mean, he just dies a horrible, lonely death. He gets his head cut off at the whim of a little girl. Like, it's just awful. And he is at the end of his life, and he's just saying, what is this all for? Like, am I, should I be, did I waste my life is, is kind of his question. And so I think that's what motivates it. And, and Jesus' response really is just, hey, it may look, different but look at the power of god look at what god is doing he's doing something in a different way than you expected so that's good um i'm getting some messages about uh, downloading the notes i guess on one of the platforms it's not working so we're going to figure that out and find out why it's not working um and we'll uh, we'll get back to you um okay another question that we got here is um this one's for matt says you mentioned blasphemy is continued disbelief, so why would that be unforgivable if it's against the Son, but not against the Holy Spirit? That seems confusing. Their, their, their question has to do with, it, in the text, it says that we can, if we blaspheme against the Son... Um, It'll be forgiven. Yeah. But against the Holy Spirit, it won't be forgiven. Why can you blaspheme against the Son, but not the Holy Spirit? One commentator said that it is... It is the, the Holy Spirit that is testifying to the work of Christ. So, so uh, blasphemy against the Son, um, I am not advocating this answer. Um, I would need to do more studying. I'm even hesitant even telling the answer. Um, I'm not going to tell the answer. I'm not going to tell you. Um, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is, is denial of the inward um, stirring that the Holy Spirit does. In the text, one commentator said that blaspheming the, the son here has more to maybe do with like an intellectual basis. Voided from the Holy Spirit actively trying to pursue you, that would be the huge difference. Uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is where the, where the uh, Holy Spirit is actively trying to pursue you, right? Actively trying to bring you into God's family. Um, the denial of the son, one commentator said that it has to do with like the denial of prophecy that he fulfills. Um, but to be honest with you, I'll, provide, I'll do more research into this, into this question and provide a better answer next week. I have, I have one answer to this. Yeah, and it's basically that verses 31 and 32 are specific to this situation, that Jesus is actually responding to the Pharisees in this situation and that he's saying, um, 
it's what I wrote on the board, which is you are calling evil good and good evil. And you're not going to be forgiven for it. So, so it would be like, uh, I'm kind of maybe to illustrate it is Jesus is on the cross. People are literally killing him. And he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So he is forgiving. And yet um, it tells us that if the Holy Spirit comes calls us to come and follow him, and we resist that call, then we will not be forgiven. So one is an active, outward, yeah. One would be an, an at, so one would be um, doing something against Christ. So these people who were against Christ um, would be forgiven, but if the Holy Spirit calls them to come and to follow, then they would be, uh, that would not be forgiven. Is that kind of what you guys are saying? Yeah, there? one commentator said, uh, one is an outward, Jesus is, and then one is an inward pulling. And the inward pulling is stronger, and so the denial has to be stronger. And therefore, that, that's what makes it unforgivable. Okay. Um, let's see. Another question is, um, I thought the unforgivable, unforgivable sin was suicide. Oh, yeah, no. It's just, how do you, is that? I don't, yeah, so I don't know. How does that make? I, I read somewhere that the Catholic Church taught that at some point. I don't know if that's currently true, so don't, don't take my word for that. But um, suicide is just, it would be self-murder. Um, and so can God forgive murder? The answer is yes. Can God give unrepentive sin if you're a follower of him? The answer is yes. You're not going to die and have an exhaustive understanding with your last breath articulate to him in every way in which you have uh, offended him, in every way in which you've sinned. No, it's all, it, when Jesus said to telestai on the cross, it's, it's finished. It's, it was paid for. It's, it means paid in full, right? And, and so uh, I believe that, that the human mind, because of sin, doctrine called the total depravity that it's affected all parts of what it means to be a human the neurochemistry that of the brain right and so someone that takes their life is dealing with a lot of a lot of pain right a lot of hurt right and to say that that person wouldn't potentially be in heaven because of self-murder i i would say is, is evil what sends people uh, away eternally eternally from uh, from jesus um is not accepting jesus for who he has claimed to be and then inviting him into your heart right so you, you grew up with a little bit different understanding. Would that be correct? Mm-hmm. What, what did, was your understanding as you were growing up? By the way, on the, on the last question, so you can say something bad about Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to you and draws you, and then you can repent, right? Right. But if you say something bad about the Holy Spirit and never repent of that, mm-hmm. so you can't repent without the Holy Spirit. So if you deny the Holy Spirit, there is no repentance, so there is no forgiveness. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to be forgiven without being drawn by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's yeah. the work, the function of the Holy Spirit, probably. Uh, okay, so this one. This is an interesting one because, you know, I, I, uh, I, I mentioned this on the weekend a little bit. Sometimes there's a little bit of a, a split personality among Christians in which we have a theology, but we live a different theology. And so uh, it, with, with the, the idea of legalism, um, uh, yes, I'm saved by grace, but I better not do anything bad, you know. <clears throat> and so the thought there is that if the last thing you do is sin, how can you get into hev- heaven? But you've got to think in terms of, yeah, but I wasn't not sinning that caused me to be on my road to heaven. It was grace. And so if the last thing I do is a sin, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think you're going to be, you know, honored for that. Um, I don't think it's in God's will and yet, I, I, does, it, does it cause you to not be able to go to heaven? Well, if you didn't earn your way to heaven, you can't unearn it. So it's, it's a tough, tough one there. Yeah, but you would also, there's this part where 
because I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to kind of push back a little bit, not that I think this, but this is what some people think, is, um, but maybe it is proof that you didn't have the Holy Spirit, meaning that you weren't actually a Christ follower, because if you were, you wouldn't do something like that. And, and that's why it's great that God is judging and I'm not. But, yeah. but you, you can um, certainly judge the fruit of someone's life up to that point. You might be able to look at the condition of their mind and the situation in right. that given moment. But, um, but that, that is a hard one. We've both done suicide funerals and those are just yeah. awful, awful. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, this one is my own question is um, everything that has been said here sounds very exclusive and a bit judgmental, um, like what Jesus is saying. And it reminded me of a news clip that I just saw, and I'm going to read it for you, and I want to see what, how you would all respond to this. Is um, There was a famous news anchor this week, and uh, he was being asked about um, a decision that was made by the Catholic Church and things like that. And, and here's what he said. He said, if you believe in something that hurts another person or that does not give someone the same rights or freedoms, not necessarily under the Constitution because this is under God, I think that's wrong. And he says, um, he says the Catholic Church, and I think, and he said, and many other churches need to re-examine themselves and their teachings because that is not what God is about. God is not about hindering people or even judging people. <laughs> so that seems to be the exact opposite of what we were talking about. How would you respond to this person? I'll say if the a, greatest person you can quote is yourself, you're in trouble. Okay. And okay. I'll say the Bible has a book named Judges. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I would say that. Um, yeah, God, the scripture couldn't be clearer that God, 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 even the parables we're talking about, he's separating people, throwing them in the, you know, like, like God does judge. But it, it, the, we have an idea that God's grace is, in, uh, is, is infinite. That is not necessarily true. It's efficaciously infinite for believers. But scripture couldn't be clear that there is a time in which it runs out. Um, that's the day in which So it, would you turns. say that, there are, there, that God cannot forgive certain things? Would you say that's an accurate statement? I, we already hit that. Yeah, he'll forgive anything if you, if you ask him to forgive it. If the Holy Spirit draws you to respond. Okay. Yeah. So there's, but there is a limit that you... you, you your non-repentant sin is the limit right. of, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what would pull you out of, uh, uh, we'll call it, we use the word pardon. So, so that quote is just typical of the society we live in. We want to say yes to everybody all the time, everywhere, and make them feel good. But we don't do that with our children. Your mm -hmm. kids want to go play in the street. You don't say yes. It hurts their feelings. In a sense, it may hurt them. <laughs> if your kid sticks his finger in the light socket, you're going to slap his hand, I hope. If not, I'll come do it. And it's going to hurt him temporarily, but it will benefit him. I just think it's, it's, it's illogical it's to say foolish. that. It's yeah, foolish. It's just a foolish statement. I, so somebody, I heard an analogy, and it was this guy had a son who had a splinter in his finger, and he was, taking, he was in his house taking the splinter out of his son's finger, and the window was open, and people were walking by on the sidewalk, and his son was just screaming. It was like a four-year-old, Dad, don't hurt me! Stop hurting me! Stop hurting me! As he's pulling the splinter out, and he thought, someone's going to come knock down my door and say, I'm here abusing my child, and I'm, I'm getting this splinter out of his finger. And he, he was saying that this is... Um, 
that sin in the world is, is hell in the world, and God is getting the hell out of the world. He's getting it out, and it hurts, <laughs> and, and we're going to suffer as it happens, and, um, and so. That's, yeah. our new, that's our new T-shirt. Yeah. Get the hell out of the world. Get the hell out of the world. That's, that's fire. That is. If you don't, it is fire. Oh. <laughs> okay. Hyperstatic. All right. Um, Doyle, do you have any uh, last comments that you'd like to make? In chapter 13, if I remember right, it 19 times the word hear or reference mm-hmm. to hearing is used. And I think that if we don't learn anything else... Um, in life, we need to learn to hear God's voice and be obedient. And it was so powerful what you said that hearing isn't just intellectual uh, accumulation of, of data. It is hearing. It is, it is hearing and seeing. And I think that if all we do is study scripture and try to learn the context of it, but don't hear what it's saying to us. So on the weekend, I made a comment about don't hear this how somebody else should be hearing it. Hear it how you need to hear it. And I think it's so wonderful because there's so much depth and you guys do amazing. I'm way over my head with you guys. You guys are way smarter than I am. Two of you anyway, Cody. Yeah. I'm just here for it to look good up here. Good lighting today. Yeah, good lighting. <laughs> good lighting. Good they lighting. didn't say anything Not on you. you. <laughs> Not on you. So and I think one of the things we could do at the end of the day, if you're more kind of cerebral and you live kind of above your neck mostly, allow your heart to get involved and allow God to speak to you and, and talk to you about who you are, who you're becoming what is next, and, and then also understand, so in the context of, of this and God's, God's mean or what, it's not true. There's a, there's a parable in here about the pearl, and we all think, well, if you, if you know the gospel, that's the pearl. That's not the pearl. The pearl is us. We are the pearl. God paid everything for us, the church. He paid everything for us. That's how much he loves us. And so if someone thinks that God is being mean, they don't understand the price he paid, how much he loves us, and how, much, how good he intends uh, for our lives and eternity to be. And, and so I hope you hear that with your heart, and, and, and that's a part of what you take away. Cool. Well, that's our time. Do you want to pray for us? I would love to. Lord God, I thank you for these really talented and smart um, teachers that we're listening to right now, and I just thank you that you are just uh, revealing so much to us about the context of Scripture, about the true meaning and intent of what you were doing, and yes, about your heart. Lord, let our heart hear your heart. Let our brain be involved in that, and let us be changed. Let us be transformed. In one sense, it's pretty funny to hear people talk about how we need to change um, our concept of who you are, but in another way, it's really sad, because at the end of the day, Lord, when when I go to sleep, I talk to you, I talk to my Heavenly Father, the one who loves me more than anybody else, the one who knows me better than anyone else, the one who has changed my very heart. And Lord God, I don't think you're mean, and I don't think you're arbitrary. You are incredibly loving. And I'm sad for the person who thinks that somehow we need to change a concept of the perfect, loving Heavenly Father who paid everything for us. Let us walk in the light of your goodness, in the light of your forgiveness, in the light of all that you have done, and let us be guided by your Holy Spirit. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, uh, thank you guys for joining us. You guys, uh, many of you are going to go into your discussion group, so make sure you download those questions. Other than that, we will see you this weekend. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. 
You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.